Hello, everyone. This is Ben Kelly with the Endeavoring Orthodoxy podcast. Uh, today, I'm going to be continuing my series in the Word of God and the Mind of Man, the book by Ronald Nash. But we'll be looking at more forms or more models of non-propositional revelation in the 20th century, particularly ones that we see out of the book by Matt Wahlberg, Revelation as Testimony. Got this here for you if you'd like to see it. The philosophical and theological study, Matt Wahlberg, Revelation as Testimony. And this, of course, this idea of non-propositional revelation in the 20th century, this led to the complete dismissal of the Bible as the Word of God um, in many Protestant denominations. And like I showed in my example a couple weeks ago, of John Bailey's book, The Idea of Revelation. And for those of you on the video, I've got it right here. It's an older book. But uh, John Bailey's book, when I picked it out, it had a somewhat prominent member of the Episcopal Church, the Reverend John Hayes uh, from the Cathedral um, Church Library of St. John the Divine in New York, New York. Um, I've got that here. Let me cover up my personal information there. But you can see that the book was from the Cathedral Library. It has the Reverend John Hayes in there. And uh, you, if we go through the book, if I were to go through the book and show you the pages, uh, the Reverend actually highlights and gets excited about many of the non-propositional claims about Revelation that John Bailey makes um, in his book, which was written around uh, 1952, 54, I can't remember. But there's an example of how someone who is moderately prominent in a major denomination in a in America during the middle of the 20th century, how that person just has no regard for propositional truth and revelation is actually very excited about the idea of non-propositional revelation that God's word doesn't really provide us with any truth claims or anything like that. So a couple of housekeeping issues. You know, if you're listening on the podcast, uh, you probably noticed some different intro music. Um, and what I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work right now to grow this podcast. And some of that comes through growing the visual media that I put on YouTube. And so actually, this is the first recorded podcast where I'm actually sitting behind a camera in front of my microphone um, for YouTube. And um, that's the future of this channel. I'm going to try to grow the visual media. And so I'm putting everything on YouTube. So sorry for those of you who just listen, but YouTube is the future of what I'm doing here and what I'm working on. So I'll also be adding a lot more content on YouTube. Um, as far as just other videos that I don't cover or topics that I won't cover in the podcast, I'm still going to do the podcast. I'm still going to put it out there uh, to listen to, uh, just like I have been doing. But no, the future of what I'm doing really is directed towards visual media and the podcast. It's going to be there, but I'm going to put much more into the visual side of it making sure I look pretty, even though I don't think I do. I'm going to be teaching some very basic 
videos in there, throwing some very basic teaching videos in there. Um, and so I'm going to be making that available through just YouTube and not on the podcast. So I'll continue to do the podcast as it's really my outlet to do a lot of intellectual theology, a lot of deep thinking, but I'm going to be shifting focus more onto video content in hopes of getting some more work out of this, getting some more subscribers out of this and uh, appealing to a broader scope of people. So with that, let's continue on these models of non-propositional revelation. I've titled this episode, How the Bible Lost Authority. And, and I really believe that. I believe that based on how these models of non-propositional revelation gained popularity in the 20th century, I believe that was at least one part of why the Bible came under such scrutiny in the 20th century and why many people just did not see it as the word of God anymore. And, and, and you'll see that when we go over these, um, these different theories. But last, um, last week, actually two weeks ago, uh, we talked about two theories of non-propositional revelation historical non-propositional revelation, and non-conceptual inner experience. And we looked primarily at Wolfhart Pannenberg and Friedrich Schleiermacher, respectively, to discuss how God reveals himself through history and through experience. That, and that does not allow us to form any kind of conception of God through knowledge. So Pannenberg was really focused on God reveals himself through history. Schleiermacher, he was really um, focused on God reveals himself through inner experience and that inner experience. We don't conceptualize God in that inner experience. We just have this kind of religious sense of what's going on. And, and that also, if you'll remember, that stems from Schleiermacher being extremely uh, worried and influenced by Kant, where Kant says, you know, we really can't conceptualize knowledge of the outside world. Well, in our minds, we, we, we really can't know the outside world. So Schleiermacher tries to go around that by saying, oh, we, we have this inner experience that's not knowledge per se. It's more of a religious experience, kind of a sixth sense almost. So this week we're going to look at what is conceptual inner experience. So last week with Schleiermacher, we looked at non-conceptual inner experience. This week, we're going to look at conceptual inner experience, um, which is really akin to mysticism um, in the Christian tradition. And then we're also going to look at revelation as a dialectical presence, which is the theology of Karl Barth and Emil Bruner of the neo-Orthodox tradition. You guys have heard me talk about them before. We're also going to look at revelation as new awareness, um, and then we're going to briefly mention some of what are called post-liberal theories of revelation. We won't spend too much time on those because while they're, they're about 20 to 30 years old, they're still kind of coming into their own within theology. Like a lot of people still don't know about them. And so all, all of these theories, they, they deem themselves to be non-propositional revelation, but our theologian we're following um, for this work, Mats Wahlberg, again, who's a Swedish uh, Roman Catholic theologian, 
Um, he shows how all of these theories, they really presuppose propositional content. And so that's, that becomes the problem. They, they say they're non-propositional, but they presuppose some kind of propositional content that you need in order to make the claim that they are actually revealing something. So let's go on to the first one. Revelation as inner experience as a conceptual experience. Now, now what is that? Well, last time we talked about how inner experience was non-conceptual, looking at Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher was so distraught over Kant's view of knowledge, of the, you know, Kant's view of the outside world and how we cannot know that outside world and, and, and therefore we cannot know God, that in order to get around Kant's challenge, really what Schleiermacher did was he stated that revelation of God had to do with religious inner experience and nothing else. And humans would experience God in a religious sense, like I said earlier, that sixth sense, and not a normal sense of knowledge of the outside world. It's not like you would see something, like I see my camera sitting in front of me right now, and I, I perceive that, and the perception comes into my mind, and I conceive of a camera. You know, Schleiermacher says we don't, con we don't conceive of God that way. We more so experience him in our inner being through a kind of religious experience, a sixth sense, if you will. So revelation as normal conceptual inner experience, which is different than what Schleiermacher was talking about, would be where humans normally conceive God through inner experience. So what that means is there is some kind of inner experience and we conceive of God in the mind. And then we have knowledge of him that way. God is still revealed through an inner experience, but it's different than Schleiermacher's model that talks about there is no conception of God in the mind. So the church has classically described this type of revelation as mysticism. Um, I don't know how else to say it. it it's mysticism. There's a, there is a place for mysticism in the doctrine of revelation. I, I wholeheartedly uh, believe that where humans experience God conceptually as a revelatory act. And, and I think it is right to point this out at the very beginning. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with mysticism as its own thing per se. Um, there, the problem comes when we say that's the only way God reveals himself. Now, there, there could be grounds to stating that many of our interactions with the Holy Spirit are a type of mystical or inner experience, an inner conception of God. And I think that, I think we can make sense of that. I think that fits well with how we experience the Spirit. It's not like the Spirit is here giving us uh, verbalizing truth propositions at us, although I would say that He helps us understand Scripture and understand the truth there. But I, I do think that we can view our interaction with the Spirit as this kind of non, or this kind of conceptual inner experience that's non-propositional. But we want to be careful that this is not developed at the exclusion of propositional revelation. So I think there's a place for both. We want to be careful not to exclude propositional revelation when we talk about this kind of mysticism, and, and that's the the problem 
we run against with most of these theories. They all try to claim non-propositional revelation at the exclusion of propositional revelation. And there's nothing wrong with saying God reveals himself in history. There's nothing wrong with saying God reveals himself through an inner experience where we then conceptualize him in our minds. There, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't see anything anti-biblical about that. The problem with it is that most of these theologians were saying this excludes propositional revelation, truth propositions that we get from the scripture. That's where the problem comes up. So the problem for this kind of inner experience comes when theologians declare that it is only a conceptual experience and has no propositional content before it to make this conception. The problem is you can think of it. Hold on. <laughs> the problem is, can you think of anything that can be experienced without first having some kind of conceptual knowledge of this experience that um, propositionally prior to that experience? So can you think of anything where you have experienced something and you conceive of it where you had no propositional knowledge of that thing prior? This is what they're trying to claim. This is what they're trying to say with this conceptual inner experience that is non-propositional, that you go into it and you've never had any kind of prior knowledge of God before, and therefore you just conceive of God through this inner experience. The problem is, as Wahlberg states in his book, most people, when they have this kind of mystical inner experience, they have some kind of preconceived conception of God built up through prior propositional content. Otherwise, how would you even know if the experience is real? You can't. If you have no propositional content prior to the inner experience, you have no reason to believe that your conception of God is real. It might as well be fantasy. Yeah, how do you know it's not a lie? How do you know it's not something else? So this type of inner experience as a revelation, it really presupposes propositional knowledge. Now, if a person claims to have a mystical experience, mystical experience of God, then what else besides propositional knowledge lets this person know that he is experiencing God? You really can't. You know, so all so if you go back and mysticism was pretty big in the you know high Middle Ages, uh, you know right before scholasticism really took over in theology, um, you have a lot of mysticism throughout Europe with Christianity, and the question would be to those mystics, you know, they they bring up these great experiences of how they have these conceptual inner experiences of God, but the question that Wahlberg demonstrates is. How do these people know that their inner experience was genuinely God had they not had prior propositional revelation to tell them that this thing they would experience is God? They just can't. It, it's impossible. You wouldn't be able to know. So in order for us to be able to identify the object of a mystical experience as God, then we are dependent on other sources of information to identify the object of our mystical experience as God. We do this, we do this all the time. Think like this. 
all the time in our biblical faithful churches we do this. When someone tells us, God told me, you know, they use the words God told me, a lot of us are always quick to try to find the biblical support for whatever God supposedly told this person. If someone had a purely mystical inner experience where they said, God told me, a lot of us would be skeptical. We would be, we would say, what do you mean God told you? Especially if what this person claims God told them contradicts scripture. We would really be in trouble at that point. We would really question it. So you can see how we really, when we question these inner experiences, these conceptual inner experiences, and we say they have to have prior propositional content, know that this is something we do all the time. When people claim that God told them something and it doesn't align with the Bible, we call them out, don't we? I mean, I tend to. So uh, we, we often don't believe people, at least we, we shouldn't believe them, when they state that they have had an inner experience of God without giving sound propositional justification as to why we should believe this inner experience is true. And this is why Paul said that people speaking in tongues, for example, should have an interpreter. Well, how do we know they're really speaking in tongues if someone's not there to interpret? We don't. <laughs> we just have to chalk it up to inner experience, mystical experience. I, I don't know how well we can trust something like that. There has to be propositional knowledge to legitimize the inner experience. Otherwise, why would we trust this inner experience at all? So literally, if we choose to follow the rules of the mystics when we have no way of telling if experience is truly God or not, uh, we're in trouble. This is why mysticism, mysticism can't becoming, it can't become the prevailing practice of revelation in the church as there is nothing to counter the notion of saying God is what we want him to be. We can literally dream up God to be anything through a mystical inner experience that if we don't tie it to some kind of propositional knowledge, we're in trouble. And so this is also why I worry about things like psychologizing the faith uh, to an extent because that kind of emotional spirituality that you guys have heard me talk about before, it becomes a conceptual inner experience of sorts that's, that has the potential to not be anchored to any kind of propositional revelation. And, and we see this happening all the time. Emotional inner experience becomes the, the leading theory of revelation and ends up trumping propositional revelation to for people who really get into psychologizing the faith to the point where the scriptures have no power to or, or authority over a person's life. And so I, I feel pretty certain that emotional spirituality has become a a type of revelation that is understood as non-propositional in a sense, it's almost like mysticism, but it's not quite there. Um, the, the mystics, they're a little different. Um, they're coming from two different worldviews. Psychology obviously comes from a much different worldview than mysticism. 
So I want to be careful. I don't want to say they're the same thing, but if we're not careful, this kind of um, emotional spirituality as a inner experience that conceptualizes God that is not tied to propositional revelation, it will exclude propositional revelation like the Bible if we're not careful, if we allow people to do that, and it will end up being heresy. So um, that, and I, I want to be clear, uh, Wahlberg doesn't make that point in his book. That's something I added in there about emotional spirituality. You know, this is kind of, this, that, that's kind of new. The, the psychology takeover of evangelical Christianity came after these models. So want to be careful with that. Now let's get into revelation as dialectical presence. Of course, this is the theory of Karl Barth, Emil Bruner, and then to some extent, Rudolf Boltman. Uh, these theologians emphasize that our relationship to God depends on revelation, and that revelation is God speaking his word to us, and this, this word is really identical to God himself. There's no difference between God's word and himself. God literally speaks his word to us in revelation, and he's revealing himself. He's not revealing propositional content about himself. So, uh, we meet God, the proclamation of the word, God himself, in the Bible and the church. Now, the Bible for these dialectical theologians is not revelation. The Bible is the medium through which revelation comes. All right. So, in, in a sense, the Bible becomes the word of God when I, I am reading it and I'm, I'm experiencing it. God reveals himself as his word through scripture as a medium, but setting scripture aside on its own, that is not revelation itself. So this, this typically, I mean, you can obviously see this, this typically devalues um, the Bible into ideas that revelation is really just an encounter with God, and it doesn't involve any kind of truth proposition. You can't learn truths about God from scriptures, really God revealing himself to you is just a, an encounter. Now, and the problem becomes in answering how one has a meaningful encounter as revelation without some kind of proposition. How do you, how do you have this meaningful encounter? How, well, and again, how do you even know you're having this encounter without having some kind of prior proposition without having some kind of propositional content prior to that. So I'm not going to speak about this theory uh, too much because I have other videos on Karl Barth, who's the major proponent of this view. Um, if this is the first time you're listening to me mention Karl Barth, uh, you need to go back and listen to those previous episodes I have. I have a, a, a few of them that talk about Barth. I do want to say, though, that when it comes to Bruner and Bart, Wahlberg, and I want to give Wahlberg his voice here, he is, he's not convinced that this dialectical process of theology is the best way to describe the theology of Bruner and Bart. Um, I've stated before that Bart has had backed off a lot of these beliefs um, later in life as his theology became more true. 
Um, and in my estimation of reading Bruner myself, I never saw him as radical as Bart in the early years. And so um, I can see where Wahlberg is coming from with this, where he states, you know, I'm not sure these views are representative of Bart and Bruner. That's actually a major point of contention in um, Barthian. Bartian, I, I keep saying, I can't remember if I'm saying Barth or I should be saying Bart. Um, that's a major point of contention in Bartian studies when people are studying him. Uh, scholars like Bruce McCormack, um, one of the great professors at uh, my university, Liberty University, um, John Douglas Morrison, who is, I believe he retired last year, um, he also has written on that subject that he did not believe Bart held this position. So know that when we talk about this dialectical theology, this is not necessarily um, not necessarily the true position of Barton Bruner. I would say it is the the position of Boltman, though. So we just got a few more things here. I'm going to try to try to uh, wrap these up real quickly here. So uh, revelation as new awareness. So when what this means is when human powers are raised to their highest activity, revelation is a new mode of human consciousness. Okay, so this gets this gets kind of out there. This is kind of spacey. Uh, what this means is that um, human powers, when they when they come to their highest abilities, when they come to their highest activities, th when a human mind can comprehend things the best that it can revelation in a sense of this model of new awareness revelation is a new mode of human consciousness and that's where that's why it's non-propositional it's not looking for truth content it's looking for a new awareness i mean you could say it's almost like a new sense like the original religious experience of schleiermacher it's not quite the same this does not include information about the you know God the divine revelation is basically an expansion of consciousness. So this was the view of Paul Tillich, who did not see God as a as a personal reality, as a, any kind of uh, person or object that we could comprehend. Rather, God is a God is a horizon that um, we are always going after. He he described God as a horizon on an open sea that one never actually reaches. There's always a new, new potential for a greater consciousness. And so God is an object expressed through symbols, um, but we never actually reach a knowledge of God because God is something we never actually encounter. So he's, he's kind of the opposite of the dialectical theologians where they say revelation only comes through encounter. Tillich says we never encounter God. We, we never really get to him. We're always approaching him. We're always, and he'll say, we're always coming into being. Um, and he'll say that God is, is ultimate being, but, and we're always coming into being, but we actually never get to that point on the horizon. And so God is the ground of all being where we grow in greater and greater self-awareness over time. So if you're confused, yeah, so were a lot of people. I, I don't know how to better understand it. You may want to buy some elementary text on, uh, you know, 20th century theology to help you better understand Tillich. 
just remember that God for him is always on the horizon and we never get there. All right. Our last um, model that we're going to look at is post-liberal theories. Um, particularly, we're going to look at John Milbank and what is called radical orthodoxy. Now, I'm only going to look at Milbank, even though Wahlberg um, names a few other theologians in his book and other models within these post-liberal theories. I'm only looking at Milbank because I feel he's the only theologian that Wahlberg lists that has any real influence, if you could even say it's influence, on the actual church, on lay people out there today. Um, some of these other post-liberal theories are so bizarre, and I've never heard of some of these theologians. Now, I mean, and let me let me put that in perspective. I mean, Wahlberg is a legit theologian, PhD, has studied hard. I mean, I'm in my THM. I'm in a postgraduate program. I'm at the top right before you go on to get a PhD. I've never heard of the guy. So, or some of these guys. I've heard of John Milbank before. I've never heard of some of these other theologians. So, I I don't want to sound, you know, like I'm so much more knowledgeable than other people, but honestly, you may not even run into some of these other people. This was the first time I had encountered them. I've read a lot in modern theology. So uh, take that for what it's worth. Uh, but like I said, uh, many of the other post-liberal theologians I've never heard of. I don't, I didn't, when I was reading their theories, I really didn't think they had any real influence in the church today. But I feel that Milbank's theory has some following, even if it's inadvertent or unconscious in the church today, I feel that some people have have some resonate can resonate with his theory. Heck, I, I I'll explain like I can resonate with his theory a little bit. So Milbank sees revelation as special illumination, um, special illumination of the intellect per se, that there's no separation between revelation and reason, human reason in Milbank's theory. Now, I think that's problematic, but I'll, I'll explain. Revelation simply strengthens reason. And so this idea is that the coming together of faith and reason, you know, bringing these two things together, allows one to participate in the mind of God. So there's something to be said for that. Uh, there's there that's definitely close to an older maybe logos theory of knowledge of revelation where uh, we participate through reason and the logos of God uh, and we'll get to that in Nash's theory but again the the problem is not divine illumination on its own per se you know the problem is not divine illumination for the purpose of believers participating in the mind of God. I think that's going to be very clear that that's close to the theory that Nash is going to propose later in his book. Uh, I believe I believe in that myself, that I believe the Spirit illuminates the human mind to better understand 
you know, God's propositions and to participate in the mind of God. There's a great amount of historical Christianity that states something very similar to what Milbank is saying, and that's why he can call it orthodoxy, but he tacks on this radical and he's going to show us why it's radical. The problem is upholding this illumination at the expense again of propositional revelation. This doesn't work. One has to know propositional truth to identify what is being illuminated by God. You don't you don't just have all this information coming into the mind um, through God. You have to be able to recognize some way that it's God. And this doesn't mean that we're going off into evidentialism or anything like that, where I, I'm going to, I would never, I, I don't subscribe to the idea that we have to have prior evidence to really know God is God. I don't subscribe to that. But there is something where you, you can't just have this divine illumination without propositional revelation. There has to be something that informs, at least informs, the illumination that the Spirit is putting into you. And it has to corroborate what the, the illumination that the Spirit is doing. So, again, it's not a bad theory. It's just incomplete, which is the problem with all of them, all the theories that we've gone over, all the models. This is the problem with all the models and theories. They all seem to express a sense or a part of a revelation, but they are, they're left incomplete without any kind of propositional knowledge. And I've shown every one of these tonight because they, they totally decline, they totally push out propositional knowledge, they're just incomplete. And as we have seen, the more theologians have attempted to hammer away at the idea that revelation does not include, or the more they've tried to hammer away at the idea that revelation includes truth propositions, the more, um, in a sense, propositional revelation comes to hammer back at them because they just can't do it without propositional truth. And so that concludes our look at the different models of non-propositional revelation. So since we started this book, we've looked at how Nash has stated the problem of how we've come to through Hume and Kant and then certain theologians to understand in contemporary theology that revelation is non-propositional. I've just shown you all the different models of how different theologians are proposing that revelation is non-propositional. And then in the next episode, what we're really going to get into is Nash's defense. So we're going back to the word of God and the mind of man. We're going back to a defense of propositional revelation. So if you're still listening, uh, please remember to like and subscribe. Uh, if you don't have notifications on, please turn them on because YouTube does not always recommend. Uh, may the Spirit of God illuminate you. There, there you go, John Milbank. I, I uh, say something every time um, to uh, commemorate <laughs> your radical orthodoxy in a sense. Um, but not without propositional revelation. So may the Spirit of God illuminate you, uh, read some good books, think deeply, and God bless you.